It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Like so many of you, I'm utterly awed by just the sheer variety of tropical fish species that we've managed to breed in our aquariums over the decades. It's a testimony to the skill set and the dedication of talented hobbyists and commercial breeders all over the world. And with obvious implications for some wild populations of fishes whose habitats are in danger, the idea of breeding fishes is a really timely one, never been more important than now. Of course, there are absolutely benefits to a well-managed wild fishery as well including protection of resources, economic benefits to the indigenous peoples, and the preservation of wild populations. Programs like Project Piaba in Brazil have shown the tangible benefits to the people, the environment, and the fishes that may be had with a properly managed program of sourcing wild-caught fishes. It works. And when it comes to the way we keep our fishes in the hobby on an everyday basis, I find a very interesting dichotomy here. Think about this. Have you ever thought about the way we've sort of domesticated the fishes that we keep in our aquariums? I mean, the way we've sort of categorically made fishes more accommodating of the environmental conditions that we would like to provide them with in our tanks? For example, we've proudly advertised, we meaning the hobby, proudly advertised uh, over the years that fishes like discus don't require soft acidic water to thrive and reproduce. In fact, a number of breeders spawn and rear them in harder, more alkaline conditions commercially. This is interesting, and it makes me think about this from multiple angles, both good and bad. As you know, I tend to spend a fair amount of time snooping around the scientific literature online, looking for little tidbits of information that might nicely fit into our fascinating and sort of evolving technique with natural botanical-style aquariums, brackish, blackwater, whatever. It's pretty fun, a little bit geeky, and pretty educational, too. I've learned a lot of stuff and hopefully shared some of it with you. Now, one of the interesting things about sifting through much of the scientific stuff is that you can occasionally find bits and pieces of information which may not only confirm a hunch that you had about something, these data can sometimes send you into an entirely new direction, and I know that it does with me all the time. <laughs> now, as a lover of brackish water habitats, we've talked a lot about them, right? I've spent a lot of time over the years researching suitable fishes and other aquatic organisms for this type of environment for aquarium keeping. I've made a lot of interesting discoveries about brackish water habitats and the fishes which supposedly occur there. Notice I used the term supposedly. Interestingly, many of the fishes that we in the hobby have sort of assigned that brackish moniker to are actually seldom found in these types of habitats, if at all. Perhaps some small populations of some of these fishes might be from mildly brackish environments, but many of them are primarily found in freshwater. Uh, perhaps through a combination of misinformation, assumption, uh, successful practice by a few hobbyists over the years, or even just wishful thinking, we've sort of attached that brackish water fish narrative to them in general. Examples, certain types of glass fishes, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, bumblebee gobies, various fishes that, yes, indeed, there are brackish water populations, but surprisingly, a larger number of them are often found in completely opposite conditions, soft and alkaline or just straight old freshwater. Uh, soft and, and uh, acid, excuse me. 
So now sure, many fishes can adapt to brackish water conditions, but I'm more fascinated by the fishes which are actually found naturally in these habitats. And it's always interesting when you can find out a fish which you've previously dismissed as not having typically come from this environment actually does come from it naturally. It's like a little discovery. It's kind of fun for me. One of those happy surprises is our good friend, the Endler's Live Bear, Posila wingai. Many of you love this fish and keep it extensively. I keep them right now. I'm having a lot of fun with them. Maybe you knew this. You probably did. But this popular fish is widely kept under what I guess we call typical live bear conditions in the aquarium, you know, higher pH and harder water. However, there are a number of wild populations from their native Venezuela, which inhabit mildly brackish water, uh, coastal lagoons and estuaries, for example. Uh, Laguna de los Patos near Cumana, which has definite ocean influence, although it's far less salty than researchers thought it may have been in the past, is one of those. And the wild populations residing there might very well be considered endangered or at least limited. Now, this kind of stuff is not revolutionary from a hobby standpoint. We've known this for some time. Uh, although these fishes are very adaptable, we don't hear all that much about keeping them in what we'd call brackish conditions, like typically a specific gravity of 1.003 to 1.005, although I like to push it a bit higher sometimes. It, it's just interesting to me to ponder, and you kind of get your head around this stuff and realize these fishes are found in all kinds of habitats. And with the popularity of this fish, it seems to me like the brackish water habitat for this species hasn't really been embraced much from a hobby standpoint. And I suppose it makes sense. It's far easier to simply give these fishes harder alkaline water than to mess with adding salt to their tanks for a lot of hobbyists. In addition, the wild populations of these fishes are scant, as is natural habitat data. There's not that many people that are just researching it right now, although I did find a number of really interesting scientific research papers on the subject. But it's you know hard to confirm this stuff with any great certainty that they're even still occurring in these types of habitats. It's really sketchy. And often, so-called populations of fishes in these specialized habits might have been distributed as a result of the actions by man, and they're not even naturally occurring there. It further confounds things, so it's really hard to tell. In general, the question about adding salt to live bear tanks has been debated for a long time, and there are many, many views on the subject. Obviously, the ultimate way to determine if you should or should not add salt to an endler's or other live bear tank would be to consider the natural habitats of the population you're working with. Live, wild live bear people know this really well. It's easier said than done, of course, because the vast majority of these fishes are now commercially or hobbyist bred for generations, especially the endlers. And wild collection data is not only not easy to obtain, sometimes it's almost impossible to obtain. I think that the debate's going to go on for a long, long time. Yet, with the increasing popularity of brackish water aquariums, we're hoping to see more experiments along this line for many different species. I was recently very happy to secure some specimens of the miserably named swamp guppy, Microposilia picta, a fish which absolutely does come from brackish water. And it's a good looking fish too. I have no intention of ever adapting these fishes to, you know, tap water or whatever, whatever's more convenient for us. So they're going to be staying brackish. Now, you know, I've always been a fan of sort of readapting or repatriating even captive bred specimens of all sorts of fishes, like blackwater origin, origin, you know, kerosens and cichlids and stuff to more natural conditions. Well, natural from perhaps a few dozen generations back or whatever. I'm of the opinion that even so-called domesticated fishes can benefit by providing them with the conditions more reminiscent of those from the natural habitats from which they originated. I think there's something really important there. Although I'm not a geneticist or biological ethicist, 
I'll never buy into the thought that oh, just a few dozen generations of captive breeding will erase millions of years of evolutionary adaptation to specific habitats and that, you know, readapting them to these conditions is somehow detrimental to them. I just don't buy that. Something seems off about that thinking. I just can't get behind that. Now, even more compelling proof that it's not so cut and dry is that many of the recommended best practices of breeding many so-called adaptable species are to do things like drop the water temperatures, adjust the lighting, change the pH, uh, perform water exchanges with you know, peat-influenced water, stuff intended to mimic the conditions found in the natural habitats of the fishes. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> We're talking about, oh, they're adaptable to tap water, yet to, to breed them, we give them the conditions that they evolved in under millions of years and haven't been kept under in captivity for generations doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, only give them natural conditions when you want to breed them? Really? That mindset just seems a bit, I don't know, odd to me. Of course, then there's other fishes which we don't really make any arguments against providing them with natural-type environmental conditions, like the Rift Lake cichlids from Africa. I mean, pretty much anybody that keeps those knows you keep them in super hard alkaline water, add that Rift Lake cichlid salt, and just, you know, keep the conditions stable. I find this fascinating from a hobbyist philosopher standpoint. And then there are fishes which we have for various reasons, maybe to minimize or prevent the occurrence of diseases, arbitrarily decided to manipulate their environment deliberately away from the natural characteristics under those of which they evolved for specific reasons. For example, adding salt to the water for fishes that are typically not known to come from brackish habitats. Examples? Well, killifish like the annual Nothobranchia species and Many cases don't come from brackish environments naturally, yet we dutifully add salt to their water as a standard practice. The adaptation of a teaspoon of salt per gallon or so is done for prophylactic reasons rather than what's convenient for us. Rather unique case indeed. And again, something that I find fascinating to look at objectively. It makes sense. Some of the parasites that these fishes are subjected to don't do as well in these saltier conditions. Is salt simply the easiest way to prevent parasitic diseases in these fishes, or are there other ways which don't require such dramatic environmental manipulations? Good question, right? And then, of course, there's those unexpected populations of fishes like various danios and gold tetras, for example, which are found in mildly brackish conditions occasionally. Compelling, interesting, yet we can't conclude that all gold tetras will benefit from salt in their water, can we? Again, it's kind of a crapshoot. And as we evolve to more sustainable hobby with a greater emphasis on captive bred or carefully sourced wild fishes and as more wild habitats are damaged or lost, will we also lose valuable data about the wild habitats of these fishes that we love so much? Data which will simply make the default for many fishes to be tap water? I hope not. It is possible, though, that we've been so good at domesticating our fishes to our easier-to-provide tap water conditions and our fish is so adaptable to them that the desire to repatriate them to the conditions under which they've evolved is really more of a niche thing for geeky hobbyists as opposed to a necessary-for-success thing. I mean, how many discus are now kept and bred exclusively in hard alkaline water, markedly different than the soft-acid blackwater environmental conditions under which they've evolved for eons? Am I just being a dreamer here, postulating without hard data that somehow the fishes are missing something when we keep and breed them in these conditions vastly different than the wild populations that they you know, are staying in? Uh, does the same genetics, which dictate the color patterns and fin morphology, also somehow cancel out the fish's programming, which allows it to be healthiest in its natural native conditions? How do we reconcile this concept? In the end, there's just a lot of variables to the equation. But I think that the Endler's discussion, it's just one 
you know, visible example of fishes which could perhaps benefit from experimenting with these sort of throwback conditions. Now, I'm by no means anything close to an expert on these fish, and my opinions are just that, they're opinions. Commercially, it may not be practical to do this, but for the hobbyists with time, resources, and the inclination, it would really be interesting to see where it takes you. Like, would the same strain kept in both brackish and pure freshwater habitats display different traits or different health characteristics, different sex ratios? Would there even be any marked differences between specimens of certain fishes kept under natural versus domesticated conditions? Would they show up immediately, or would it become evident only after several generations? And I think, uh, again, I think about brackish water fishes and the difficulty of tracing your specimens to their natural source, which makes this all that much more challenging and kind of fun. I look forward to many more of these kinds of experiments, you know, bringing the natural conditions to domesticated fishes and perhaps unlocking some more secrets or perhaps simply acknowledging what we all know. There's truly no place like home. (laughs) Stay observant. Stay curious. Stay adventurous. Stay resourceful. Stay experimental. Stay relentless. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tenant.